Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father, Stanley Silverfield, and his Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. We are in Act One, Stanley's War, Scene One, Nashville, of The Silver King. And this is Michael. This scene on Saturday, January 10th, 1943, is the ride from Birmingham, Alabama to Nashville, Tennessee. It's a 190-mile ride north to the Army Air Force Classification Center headquarters at Thompson Lake, Tennessee. The trains whistle long and low as cars filled with young, hopeful warriors rumble over rails and signal the early reveille at quiet before the personal storms of war. The story seen is how two young men, strangers, share their dreams, desires, and fears as they prepare to enter the Army. The cadet classification process is an intense, quick, difficult conversion from civilians to soldiers. Stanley is posted to pilot school in eight days, made corporal of the squad in 11. The post exchange offers 10-cent beers, 13-cent cigarettes, and cute girls. Three weeks of living with 38 men around coal stoves on wood cots in a shed. A shock, but the guys and food are good. He's 160 pounds, six feet, perfect vision, working to become an American aviator. Stanley is posted to Maxwell Field in Montgomery, Alabama on January 30th, 1943 for nine pre-flight training weeks. This is a very dense indoctrination in the Army's culture. He suffers the indignities of underclassmen life to reach upperclassmen status. It is square meals, rat lines, getting gigged. This separation process, boys to men, made them mature quickly. A do-the-job environment was driven by classes, drills, calisthenics. 800 men striving to fly, too busy for fear or failure. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. Stanley was ready for the work. He relished the challenge and described it in detail to his dearest ones. Prepare for combat is the Maxwell Field shield and symbol for the warrior life. Michael reads from an official letter, June 18, 1942, Birmingham, Alabama Federal Building. Quote, I certify that Stanley Lester Silverfield, 1410364, enlisted this 18th day of June, 1942, as a member of the Air Force Enlisted Reserve, end quote. James W.C. Myrie, 1st Lieutenant Infantry, President of the Aviation Cadet Board. November 26th, 1942, again from the Birmingham, Alabama Federal Building, quote, You are to be present at the Army Show Tuesday evening, December 1st at 8.30 o'clock in the City Auditorium, Birmingham, Alabama. You will take your seat in the first section down in the front, in the middle section of the main floor. You may bring as many of your friends as you wish, and they may sit with you. We will be glad to have your parents, aunts, and uncles come, but do not ask the older people to sit down front with you. And keep them flying. James W.C. Myrie, First Lieutenant, Infantry, President of the Aviation Cadet Exam Board. 
The Silverfield family Thanksgiving weekend before the Army show in Birmingham on December 1 included sharing the November 28th issue of the New Yorker magazine. The feature business piece was the first of a two-part profile by Alva Johnston about Glenn L. Martin called Hero for Business Reasons, Part 1. Martin Manufacturing, a major provider of war material, was building the B-26, the Martin Marauder, for the U.S. Army Air Corps near Baltimore in Middle River, Maryland. Days before the holiday weekend, the Air Corps commanding officer, General Hap Arnold, sent a telegram to Glenn L. Martin dated November 25th of 1942. It read, The bombers you build are proving themselves today in the Aleutians in North Africa and in the Southwest Pacific. At Kiska, a formation of marauders sank two Jap destroyers in one raid, end quote. Our hero, the Silver King, rode his B-26 war in the Martin Marauder's nose, the greenhouse. Michael reads the very first letter that his father wrote from the war. It's dated uh, Wednesday, January 13th of 1943 from Nashville, Tennessee. Dear Mother and Dad, Today was the beginning of either the end or a wonderful future. This afternoon, I had the first part of my physical exam. The second and final part will come tomorrow sometime. Naturally, I am very nervous, for God knows everything depends on the outcome. If I am lucky, I'll be classified as a pilot, navigator, or bombardier. If I am not lucky, I'll be washed out. This means, I guess, I'll be made a private in the ground crew. Therefore, you can understand how important it is to me. Tomorrow this time, as I write you, I'll either be a very happy fellow or a very disappointed buck private. I was up again at 5.45 this morning, and getting up so early is really giving me a beating. It's so cold here in the barracks and so uncomfortable. It's very hard to get out of a warm bed. The weather is still cold, but there hasn't been any rain yet. After breakfast, there was an inspection. Our cots must be made a certain way, our clothes hung a certain way, and the barracks swept out. You should see me hard at work at this. I'll be a neat housekeeper when the war ends. Following inspection, we drilled for two hours. One fellow fell out. I guess he was trying too hard and dropped from the strain. This afternoon was the physical. I just finished my nightly shave and shower. Incidentally, I haven't had a hot bath or shave since I've been here. There just never seems to be any hot water where I go. When you write Leona, tell her I'll write her very soon. I'm so tired at night I can't even think. Maybe tomorrow, after I finish the exam, the relief of the strain will pep me up a bit. The fellows from Columbus have been my closest friends. They aren't in my barracks, but in the ones right next door, and we do everything together. Without them, I'm afraid I would be very lonesome. I still haven't met any Jewish fellows. There isn't any discrimination, though, so I don't mind it so much. Tomorrow I am sending home my civilian clothes in a barracks bag. Please be sure to return this as soon as possible, as I need it badly. Also, please put some towels, wash soap, and the other pair of underwear in it when you return it. Don't send the pajamas, as I don't need them. That's all for now. I'm feeling fine and want to hear from you. Please write soon. Love, Stan. 
This is the king's son, Michael, in February of 2021. How do I know the Silver King? I'm his son. After the war, Stanley met and married Shirley June Gordon in Chicago at the Intercontinental Hotel. I was born in June of 48, and my sister Cindy was born in February of 51. Two births at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. Our dad, Stanley, was born on April 23, 1923 in Birmingham, Alabama, and mom was born on June 23, 1922 in Chicago. Our family moved from a West Aldine Avenue apartment near Lake Michigan to a new home on Greg Road in a former cornfield known as Northbrook, a Chicago suburb in 1955. Then when dad got a big promotion, we packed for Rockford, Illinois in October of 1960. And that month, we became the Seavers. Stanley sold beauty supplies for two zany uncles, Abe and Joe Bailey. His new territory, the Rockford region, had a serious anti-Semitic history. The family's minions met about a name change. Roy Seavers was playing first base for the Go-Go White Sox, a team that had lost the 1959 World Series to the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had just moved west from Brooklyn. We were Northsiders who revered the Cubs and Bears, and now we wore the pale hose. JFK won the White House a month later. I, the lonely liberal in my Teddy Roosevelt Junior High School social studies class, took the presidential oath on January 20th, 1961. Stanley's parents, Milton and Sarah Bell, were part of an extended, prosperous Jewish community. Stanley's older sister, Leona, was the duchess. They were ranchers and hide salesmen, and Milton and his brothers collected scrap and traded commodities and built what became Birmingham Hide and Scrap. World War II changed their world. Stanley wanted to fly for his country. His war and extraordinary writing about it began on this train. He was 19 and wrote stories with $10 words. This is the Silver King's War. As the lights go up on scene one, Stanley stands in the Pullman car aisle and faces John Sherry, who is sitting in a window seat. This is the king. Hi, I'm Stanley Silverfield, Birmingham, ERC. Is this seat taken? His war buddy, John Sherry. No, it's yours. I'm John Sherry from Baton Rouge. Same. Good to meet you. On the way to Nashville? They shake hands, and Stanley stows his case above the seat and sits down. The king. Thank you. Yes, Nashville. A short ride to start a long road to war. I'm ready and nervous. And what about you? John Sherry. Sure. When did you sign for the Enlisted Reserve Corps? I joined in May of 42, and the Army promised me six months. And Stanley? I signed in June of 42, and I was ROTC at Illinois. The draft loomed after FDR signed the Selective Service Act in 1940. I want to fly. Aviation cadet sounds right. Mind if I smoke? John Sherry, smiling. Got one to spare? This is the narrator, Michael. Stanley pulls a Lucky Strikes pack and a lighter from his pocket and offers one to John Sherry. He Strikes his Ronson. There's a flicker, and the smoke rises as dreams float to darkness. 
Sherry as the war buddy is essential to Stanley's success. Known as J.J. throughout the war, he guides our young hero. Each man chose to be an air cadet. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, signed the Selective Training and Service Act in September 1940. Stanley, then 17, imagined an air war. This scene, as it closes, represents the promise and reality of the Silver King's War. The hope with each cigarette of service to country matches the smoke that dissipates to dark as the stage lights fade. The lighter represents the king's quest for guidance through chaos. Men live and die, dreaming their dramas, happiness and fear. This is the Silver King. Michael reads a hopeful and inspiring letter that his father wrote on Saturday, January 30th, 1943, from Maxwell Field in Montgomery, Alabama. Dearest ones, I'd give a million dollars to see the expressions on your faces when you receive this. Yes, I'm actually stationed at Maxwell Field and will be here for the next nine weeks. It's such a lucky break that I can't believe it's true. Of course, you realize I couldn't write you before now as I was on shipping orders since Monday and no letters or phone calls were permitted. 800 of us, all pilots, left Nashville yesterday at around 5 o'clock after standing in the snow for four hours. About half an hour out of Nashville, we were told our destination was Maxwell. You can imagine my joy. It was an all-troop train and a horrible ride. The worst part of it all was standing in the L&N station in Birmingham and not being able to call you. It was all of 20 minutes that I was there, but orders prohibited anyone from leaving the train. At two this morning, I got my first glimpse of Maxwell from inside the place. Frankly, I didn't nor haven't seen much yet, as it is the upperclassmen who began hazing immediately upon our entering the field. Believe me, they really run us crazy as underclassmen. It's exactly like Hell Week in a fraternity or you might call it military school. It's a lot of fun, though, even though I must take a lot of ribbing. After four and a half weeks, I'll be an upperclassman, and so I can take it all out on the underclassmen. I'm afraid this also means I won't be permitted to see you. Until I become an upperclassman, I won't have any privileges. It's a shame being so close, but that's the Army. I don't even have any idea when I'll be able to call you, but will do so at my first chance. The barracks are much nicer here. I don't think any place is as bad as Nashville. I was certainly glad to get out of there. Besides, the weather here is beautiful compared to what I left. It was miserable. Having had only one hour sleep last night, I really won't start my work until Tuesday. That's when classes, drill, and calisthenics will start. Well, it certainly was a disappointment not meeting you last Tuesday. I received both of your wires, and the second one surely was a relief. I was worried terribly about you. I got to the hotel at 5.30, and when you didn't come by 6.30, I called home. Having no one to answer, I was even more worried. I waited until 8.30 and then had dinner with Jean, who used to work at the Continental Room. He was very nice to me and wouldn't let me pay for a thing. He has the same job there that Mr. Miller has at the Tutwiler Hotel. He tried to console me some, but I was so blue he wasn't much help. 
Now it will be another month before I see you. In the meantime, please write often. I love you and I miss you. Stan. Air Cadet Stanley Lester Silverfield, Squadron F-8, Class 43I, Maxwell Field, Montgomery, Alabama. This is the end of Scene 1 in The Silver King. You are listening to The Silver King's War.